Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have one of my favorite people. Rama Kumaran. And Rama holds a really special place in my heart. He uh, grew up with my kids. And yeah, Rama, what have you been doing lately? Hi, Heidi. Hi, Tatiana. It's great to be here. Um, it has been, I think, close to 10 years since I graduated from Lemmy programs in and high school. Uh, since then, the very, very, very short clips notes is that I went off to school at Vanderbilt University out in Nashville, Tennessee, and took a gap year from Vanderbilt to come back to my hometown, rebuild some ties that needed to be rebuilt, and then go off to finish my bachelor's and then a master's degree studying historical music at the conservatory in Amsterdam. That being done, I am talking to you from my apartment here in Nashville, where I am starting to make some career moves. I'm fresh out of school and uh, and having some conversations with mentors that uh, that I've needed to have. That is awesome. You're still playing your music. Oh yes. Well, and you're catching me at a at a really funky moment. I had a life planned out from probably from the end of my bachelor's, probably senior year at Vanderbilt, three, four years ago. I had an idea of what I wanted the rest of my life to unfold into. I kind of had the shape of the thing. But then after grad school, which didn't really shake that idea, I moved back to Nashville and, uh, and started in as a freelance musician here. And that's, while that's a difficult life, I was prepared for that. And I knew that that's what I wanted to commit to. The life of, the free, of a freelancer, speaking as you know, a 25-year-old who knows nothing, is committing to an area and, uh, and putting down roots as deep as I can. Um, so that means uh, finding a church community, making friends there, rubbing shoulders with other musicians, and taking it nice and slow. Now, it scares people around me when I take things nice and slow because, you know, the people that care about me want to see me getting somewhere. And I figured that's where my mentors were coming from when they told me that, uh, that I should be asking some more questions about my life right now. So I had a mentor come for dinner here at the apartment and he just sort of toppled me right over. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, think about all of these other things. And uh, that means that now I am putting effort into some very different career moves. That doesn't mean that my life as a freelancer here in Nashville ends, but it does mean that I'm more aggressively pursuing a soloist's career on a much more international stage. That's as of two weeks ago, so wish me luck. <laughs> so what do you play then? I'm a flute player. I studied flute performance at Vanderbilt. Um, 
taking a four-year bachelor's degree, and then went on to pursue modern and historical flute playing uh, at the master's level with two different truly brilliant professors over at, uh, at the conservatory in Amsterdam. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a, like a memory, because you just talked about mentors stepping in recently in your life, but do you have like a, an example of a mentor that really helped you when you were, you know, in high school? Well, I told you an LED would come up. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I was thinking about before we got on our call uh, was one of the classics that affected me the most when I was in high school. This is when I was a junior in high school and taking Shakespeare conquest training. Is that right? I was taking a um, key of liberty training. That's what it was. And I was lucky enough to, uh, to sit in a class uh, studying with Anality Milne. Um, and after class, I think on the last day of our training, she drew me aside and spoke to me about all manner of things. But most of it was centered around the book list that she was writing for me. Um, and we ended up talking for, I think, a good two or three hours. And uh, she recommended Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And that is a book that accompanied me through the rest of high school and a good part of college as well. It's not a specific lesson that I learned from that book, but more the tone of really balanced, peaceful, absolutely single-minded, determined inquiry. Um, Robert Persig is an intensely curious person, and he does that from a place of, I don't know if centeredness is the right word, but certainly his book had a calming influence on me. I'm reading the sequel right now, um, Lila, but something about that book helped me remember Anality and call her back sometime after I'd entered college, not long into freshman year and share more with her and get more of her counsel. We haven't had more than three or four conversations total ever, but they were enough. And I hope you'll, I hope you'll pass the word along Tatiana. So I haven't had the chance to talk to Anality lately. Yeah, I'll definitely tell her she's, she, she speaks very highly of you. I think it's interesting because I think sometimes we think, oh, a mentor has to be somebody that we like, you know, have weekly interactions with and we're like constantly, you know, speaking with. But I think, you know, there's different types of mentors we can have, you know, they, they look different. And I think it's a paradigm shift to be like, no, I'm going to have this person like I'm going to call them my mentor and then accept the what they have to offer and help me in my journey. So I really like that. Bring that up. I agree. And we talk about in TJ Ed, we talk about being mentored by the classics, not just mentored in the classics, but by them. That means letting a book sit on your shelf and, uh, and taking a stab at a chapter every couple of years until it's just the right book at just the right time. I suppose people are like that too. This just happened to me. I'm not even kidding. I when I was when I was like 16 years old, I've always loved Peter Pan. I've always loved Peter uh -huh. Pan. And when I was 16 years old, I bought a copy of Peter Pan, like 
um, a really beautiful copy of Peter Pan. I'm like, oh, I'm going to read this. And, and I kept it on my bookshelf and I never, I got like one chapter in and then I just never finished. I yeah. just never got into it. Right. Yeah. But now yeah. I'm a mom and I'm like, okay, I'm going to read Peter Pan to my kids. And I had no idea that Peter Pan is written for moms. It's not written for kids. It's written for moms. Like Jay in Barry there, moms in mind. He totally did. Like in there, he talks about how like you know, you know, the mom sat at their kids' bedsides like any good mom would yeah. every night and cleaned their thoughts. And I was like, I don't clean my kids' thoughts. What are you talking about? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I I need to clean my kids' thoughts. So like then I started like. You know, every a couple nights a week, yeah. be sitting down like, hey, what's going on? And how are things going? And oh my gosh, the things that my kids told me, like, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, well, yeah. I should clean my kids' thoughts more. But I, I love that you mean that out. Wow. It's like, even though, like, we have all these classics that sometimes can look overwhelming, like, put them on the shelf and know that you're going to get to them. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a, there are several books like that. I won't say lots and lots because, you know, it takes a certain number of special books to... Uh, to be your mentors, quote unquote. Um, Swan's Way by Marcel Proust was one of those for me that I still haven't gotten through it, but uh, it gave me what I needed when I was just just a mess as a sophomore in college. And it's continued to give me what I needed. I took it along with me to Amsterdam. Um, it gave me a little more purchase on what life was like across the pond. And uh Funnily enough, it's not sitting on my shelf right now. It ought to be. I'm sure that I'll get back to it at some point. Uh, awesome. So do you have um, a favorite class that you took, like a, a, a Lemmy project or a class that really stuck out to you? Project, I should say. I had, let's see, four years for, I guess, five years in Lemmy projects. Um, well, and then one and more where you mentored when you came back and mentored. That's right. So counting that, I guess it was six years. Lord. Yeah. Um, and each class was formational to me. That's that sounds overstated, but I really do think it was the case. Um, there were some very intense years. I didn't homeschool until eighth grade. I homeschooled from eighth grade all the way through high school and then went off to college and came back for one year and mentored. So um, each class did something specific and special for me that said Quest, which we used to call TJYC, really takes the cake. I had um, I had Angela Creel and uh, and um, and Vanderlinden as my mentors, as well as, oh, why can't I think of her name? Was it Christine? Is that right? Heidi, help me out here. Who was, was it Christine Fuller? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, no, yeah. So between the three of them, they fed me a steady diet of, of, classics and not so classics that were necessary so we talk we talk about one book that i won't mention by name that everybody seems to revile in uh, in tjyc and it's a book that uh, that breaks down um, a bunch of different opinions in a very uh, organized way over the course of a textbook sized work and um 
I disliked it when I was in the class. Everybody else around me disliked it. The mentors disliked it. And yet it taught me some very important academic habits that I, uh, that I took with me. Um, one of the, one of the most important uh, habits of those was to respect something that is fixed, even if it's not perfect. Um, I studied historical performance when I was in Amsterdam, and that requires that you uh, that you accept a certain number of givens in order to push forward and learn from them, even though you and everybody else around you knows that those givens are imperfect. We don't know how uh, people lived and played and thought in the 18th century in France. And we can never know that for certain, but the, uh, the body of imperfect but deeply impassioned scholarship there is enough for us to, uh, to learn quite a lot and change the way we live and work and play. Um, I don't know, I, I had this noted down that I wanted to, I wanted to talk about this particular book, if nothing else to sort of redeem it in my own mind. No, that was, that did end up being important. So yeah, <laughs> you're, quest, you're not going to name the book. Me. You're just going to leave it unnamed. So only... I'm not because, because I don't want to, I don't want to trash a book and then name it. You know, <laughs> I still, I still don't think that I'll revisit that book because it's, it served its purpose and it's sitting somewhere at home and uh, and I'm sure that it'll serve a purpose for somebody else. I don't know, should I should I name it? Heidi, I think you know what I'm talking about. It feels ill-mannered. Do you, do you remember Understanding the Times? <laughs> That's what I was gonna guess, Understanding yes. the Times, because I hated yeah. that book too and I had to read yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's loathsome. So there, are, there are bits in that that are completely unusable, but if nothing else, just the structure of the thing um, to start thinking about cultures as they stand today, um, having moving parts and mechanics that make people think the way that they do. This was hugely influential in my uh, in the research that I did as a master's student, which was about teaching across genres so that different professionals could uh, could interact with each other and collaborate more productively because they don't have to work so hard to break the ice. Understanding the very basics of cultural studies from, from my own self-study as a master's student. You know, I might not have had the groundwork to do that study if I hadn't read Understanding the Times in high school and put a finger on why I disliked it so much. <laughs> I think it's so awesome that you said that because I, I don't think when I did Quest, you know, teach YC when, when, when we were going through it. I don't think that um, they made us read the whole thing. I think they only made us read excerpts. Okay. So I think you got away with, I mean, I got away with it. <laughs> but it still, it was, yeah. it was hard. It was not fun. And I remember being yeah. like, what does this even have to do with anything? I'm so lost. <laughs> this is so overwhelming. It's over my head. Yeah. But, you know, like your mentor asked you to do it and you're just like, okay, fine. I'm going to do this. But I, I think it was like when I went to college, I realized, wait, you don't know this about the world. You, you know, like it was right. it was shocking to that me was, that there were so many yeah. naive people who literally mm -hmm. had no idea about this premise, which is like everywhere once you know it. OK, right. now you guys, you yeah. guys need to yeah. tell what the premise is. Well, then I mean, they need I'll... to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so the from what I remember, 
um, the uh, understanding the times posits that there are what seven principal worldviews um, among which I won't try and list them all, but among which are biblical Christianity, um, Islam, secular humanism, cosmic humanism, and uh, well, three others. Um, and that within each one of these worldviews, you can put a finger on how they think about ethics, how they think about epistemology, how they think about um, what are the other things, biology. Um, and there are there are ten subcategories within each of these. Now. Uh, Something like this can can be and was horribly reductive to try and condense an entire worldview into uh, ten easily easily categorizable elements, but that was the premise of understanding the times, and that was an extremely useful premise for me heading into college. Now I still didn't know anything about anything when I was when I was a freshman in college. You know, reading uh, reading about worldviews in a book doesn't substitute for living with and talking to uh, people who have grown up differently than you have. Um, so I, I won't pretend that uh, that Quest did that for me, but what it did give me was a good solid academic foundation to head out into the world. Yeah, now I, one of the things, I, I agree that, that it's very, a very limited book as a mentor for Quest, what I loved about it was that it helped kids kind of see outside themselves and they would take it home and they would talk to their parents and, you know, figure it out for themselves. Okay. What is my worldview right now? Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Yeah. And my worldview when I was in, when I was taking quest as a high schooler was absolutely entrenched secular humanism. Mm -hmm. So to be able to, understand that even while I was inside it and then to go to college and uh, and see other things led to perhaps a little bit more security as my own worldview changed. So um, I'm not sure if uh, if this is the subject that that we want to center in on uh, on this podcast episode, but Halfway through college, I converted to Christianity. And that was, you can imagine, a sort of, it's, it's the kind of event that turns your world upside down. Um, oh, yeah, especially going from secular humanism. No. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's a different, it's, it, it, I wouldn't say they're polar opposites, but they on that chart, they're very... Yeah. That, was, that was a change that had been seeded uh, by many of my classmates growing up. Um, and I certainly would not have understood the nuts and bolts of that change um, without having already been thinking about worldviews in, in high school. And then once I made the commitment, that was a whole nother thing is uh, learning to live up to the things that you've committed to and promised. But anyway, wow. that's, a, that's, that's a pretty that's big awesome. tangent. I just recently, oh, I'm going to have to remember the book that I was reading. Unfortunately, I read a lot of books at the same time because I have <laughs> probably like, oh, I'm a little bored of that now. So then I'm like, go get another sure. book and then read it. <laughs> but sure. I, oh, yeah. I just read a book um, and oh, man, I'm really frustrated that I can't remember it. But he's a, a really well-known um 
correspondent. He used to work for uh, CBS as their science correspondent. Went all over the world with for science and things like that. And he, um, he was talking about how people are so confused and lost and frustrated, and that's causing this mental health problem is being caused because nobody knows what their worldview is. They don't even know they have a worldview. And he's like, and this is the problem. It's like you go out into this world and you get, you go to college and get blasted with all these different ways of thinking, and they can't think because they have no idea where they stand. And he's like, so I don't care where you stand. But you need to know you stand somewhere. So let me tell you what your worldviews are, so you can start standing somewhere. And so I'm like, I read <laughs> I this and I was. Approach, I love how his approach was. Let me tell you what your worldview is. Yeah, like he's like he's like these are the worldviews, whether you know you have them or not. Like yeah. they're there. And it was like I was reading this book and I was like, wait, people don't know they have a worldview. <laughs> I know this is so stupid of me, but like. Well, no. I think I think you've hit upon something important that even if you believe something, it's very dif difficult to understand what you believe unless you can articulate it. And if I can make the blanket statement, that's one of the that's one of the more important things that Lenny did for me is uh, put me in a situation where not only my mentors but my classmates were well used to articulating their thoughts and worldview and that my success in those classes did not depend on um, how impressively I could, uh, I could perform, but on how much centeredness and integrity I could have in my studies. How well I could articulate a coherent and intelligent worldview, even through all of the, all of the little disciplines that Lenny classes teach. That's a lot to unpack. Uh, this is your time like wow that's that's like a really profound way of looking at the project as a very um complexity on the or simplicity on the far side of complexity you know like that we what we really do is give you those skills to communicate with yourself and the world who you are right and all and all of that happens you know week to week in all right let's read a chapter uh, or let's read two scenes of romeo and juliet and let's talk about uh, whether or uh, hamlet uh, you know let's talk about whether polonius was right to eavesdrop on uh, on uh, on hamlet and uh, oh, what 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 was what was the scene now um polonius was eavesdropping on who was he eavesdropping on um yeah he was he was eavesdropping on hamlet and ophelia and then hamlet kills him yeah isn't he, he also thinks... uh, Gertrude? There we go. Uh, he oh, was yeah. eavesdropping on Hamlet and Gertrude oh, yeah, uh, while they're while they're having their heated conversation, and uh, and you know we talk about that in class. Okay, is that the right thing to do? And you know, being gosh, thirteen years old, of course I have an absolute strong opinion on that, or not. I have no idea what I think, and uh, at least I can hear classmates going, "Well, here's what I." think maybe sort of kind of and then someone else sort of raises their hand and goes uh i think something else question mark so funny <laughs> you bring that up because like i we just um i just started teaching again and um teaching shakespeare and we're doing merchant of venice which is one of my favorite plays and 
It's so funny because that's exactly what it looks like. You ask this question as the mentor and it's just like dead silence. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> wait, I'm supposed to have a thought about this? Like, this is so abstract. This is so out there. Like, I don't really care that some man's going to like give another man 3,000 ducats. And I'm like, okay, well, what, how much is 3,000 ducats? And I'm like, I don't know. Right. Well, ask Google, how much is 3,000 ducats? We're like, oh, like right. $3 million. guys asking for three million dollars to go see a girl you're gonna give your friend that money <laughs> like, right and then right. like then one hand goes up and like that's a bad idea my mom says we should never like loan money to friends <laughs> you know yes then... <laughs> and that's where it starts that's where it starts i have i have students who are that who are that age who of course take the uh, absorb their opinions from the household that they live in or from their friend group or whatever and that's what they put out into the world but uh, yeah, we all we all have these stages. Again, speaking as this incredibly wise twenty-five-year-old. Sorry to wax poetical, but um, we have these stages where we uh, where we realize, oh, so this is the point where I actually make a choice. That's that's where I'm sitting right now, where I'd had this this career plan, and uh, and most of it was based on following role models that I really respected, but now. You know, I had this mentor come in and uh, and uh, tell me, Brahma, that's so unlike you. Why why would you need to follow a role model? And I go, well, yes and no. I've followed role models all my life. They were hugely influential and important to me. But yeah, maybe it is the right time to have my own opinion about certain things, about how my life's going to roll out in front of me. Well, I think you've had your own opinion for a, a while because uh, Heidi says that you asked your parents to homeschool you. So tell us that story. Okay. So this was a joint decision. I was in middle school and uh, had demonstrated a talent for flute playing. Um, the real ostensible uh, purpose of switching into homeschooling was so that I'd have more time to practice. Um, my, my very focused and driven and capable, uh, flute teacher in high school is named Tracy Harris. Uh, she's a Yamaha performing artist and she had her sights for me set on, uh, on very, very high goals. She was asking for, um, two to three hours a day of, uh, of practice, uh, as we headed into late high school. That started when I was in when I was in eighth grade. Um, so starting to ramp up my practice goals and uh, and become a competitive flute player. So I started homeschooling. We got out of uh, of public middle school, uh, eschewed public high school, and as a sort of ancillary benefit, joined Lenny courses because um, I had met Heidi and her family through. A mutual friend of ours who was my uh, previous flute teacher at the time. Her name's Karen Hansen. So we were introduced to the Christiansons. They told us about this great uh, Lenny uh, uh, co-op called the Genius Co-op and uh, showed up on Wednesday morning in the fall. We're interrupting this broadcast to remind you to share and subscribe. Also, be sure and check out our website at lemmymentortraining.com. Um, I was taking Key of Liberty and Shakespeare. 
um, went to do sort of freedom and eventually quest and classical acting. Yeah, it, you were amazing. It, it, we were all so blessed that you you joined us. I definitely feel like it was divine intervention all the way around. <laughs> Certainly in terms of what genius gave to me, you know, what, the, what that co-op gave to me and, and the way that it taught me to give back. Because I was watching... Uh, I was watching my peers like Josh and like Connor Denton and uh, and Quentin Fairchild um, give back by being student mentors. And I saw how much respect they garnered from their peers for doing so. And I respected the heck out of them. They were um, They were absolute paragons to me when I was when I was 13 and 14 years old I suppose I love yeah. I love that you bring that them up as that they were teaching right you know not too much older than you and they were teaching right um mm -hmm. I was talking to my sister the other day and I was like I think I started I taught sort of freedom for the first time I think I was 16 and I, I created the class at 16 and I was like I think mom was crazy like <laughs> what did, like what how did she think i could do this and i think that's one of the, the genius is of let me is like okay now you've been through these classes now to go teach them it's like you know how many you know right. I, you know high school curriculums are like okay now take these classes and then go teach them like not not very many <laughs> probably not no but then that's that's a different system as we as we talk about in uh in TJ Ed uh, mentor training and uh, and in the TJ Ed literature, we talk about public school and that system serving a different purpose and a certainly when it was invented a worthy one. And the fact that that TJ Ed uh, in general and Lemmy projects in particular are an extremely different educational model um, does not mean that they are uh, they are perfect nor the only way to educate a kid i mean my story was that and i was mentioning this to uh, to heidi just before the beginning of our call i was tasked with striking a really uneasy balance between uh, tj ed style leadership oriented learning and uh, and the kind of uh, achievement-based education that would send me to college. My family and I had determined very early on that, that college was, uh, was a necessary part of our plan. And uh, that meant accruing academic credentials that would only come through a certain amount of traditional schooling. Now, there were workarounds for that. Uh, in addition to Lemmy courses, what I, what I ended up doing was enrolling in a charter school which would allow me to take concurrent enrollment courses at the local community college, meaning that I could still pursue a really competitive standard of, uh, of training in uh, the histories and sciences and uh, a little bit in the humanities, but Lemmy was really where I got the, the heart of my humanities training, learning to be a, a good speaker and a good reader and learning, to, learning that that was important to me and not just in generalities, like just being able to close read a text 
and and, uh, and uh, take it line by line and go, okay, so this is what I didn't get. And here's my process for understanding it. I don't have to get it right away, but I'm just going to go over it and follow the process and then go over it again and follow the process. And now as a teacher, I do the same for my own students uh, when they're studying, uh, when they're studying music or literature with me. That is awesome. So do you have, what do you teach? Um, while I was in school, while I was in college and grad school, uh, I taught a mix of music students and academic students. Um, I particularly enjoyed the academic mentoring that I could do because what I ended up uh, doing with the family that's worked with me the longest um, is uh, taking their kids and connecting all the different things that they're studying. So uh, we do uh, typically uh, four to five week unit studies on, on topics just all over the place um, with a specifically with a recursive strategy of, uh, of coming back to things that we've studied in months or years past. And uh, usually that means that uh, the things that we've come back to three or four times are the ones that are ingrained the deepest. And, uh, um, but right now I'm, uh, I'm transitioning into just music teaching, which I, uh, I still do in a, uh, in a highly transferable way. So my students are typically learning uh, not only how to play their uh, their instrument well, but also to read and listen intelligently. Uh, so uh, really be able, with the final goal being that they can pick up a piece of sheet music and uh, and read it like a novel. That was my goal in undergrad. And uh, I'm happy to say that I'm there are some pieces that I can pick up and enjoy because they sound in my head. I love that. It's a it's a big it's a big stretch to get there, but man, it's worth it. That is really cool. I love that. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you could you could get me talking all day about this. <laughs> sort of hold back for now. That is really neat. Well, I know our community. We were part of an amazing community, and one of the things that. Lemmy is about is is helping to build communities. And so one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is how did our community help you? How did it impact your life? I alluded to this earlier when I was when I was talking about being able to articulate myself to put a finger, as it were, on my own pulse. Go, okay, here's what makes me tick. I might not like it. I might not, this might be uncomfortable, but at least I can talk about it. Um, what this question really makes me think of, though, is something that happened actually several years after I had, uh, I had left uh, Lemmy courses uh, behind. When I was in grad school, um, well, I entered grad school in the fall of 2019 and COVID happened in the, in the spring of 2020. So grad school was a mixed bag. And 
a lot of my peers felt tremendously isolated. Now, I was happy and tremendously lonely. I was happy to be um, cloistered off in my little student flat studying and practicing and doing what grad schoolers do anyway. But even before March of 2020, when, when Holland went on lockdown, I had started writing newsletters back home. Initially, I thought it would be every two weeks, turned into every month or two over the two years that I was in grad school. And I didn't realize it at the time, but what was happening was a perfect confluence of me being really eager to share what was going on and also having the perfect audience to share it with. This wasn't a public newsletter. It was a, uh, it was limited to the folks that I, that I knew would really want to be checking in with me and that I knew I wouldn't have the time to call on the phone every so often, nor the line space. And this now is a, re I, I put a bow on that after grad school ended, you know, once a thing is over, it's over. And I could close that chapter, but I can revisit those letters now and be so happy that I had the community that would support that little thing. Um, it would not have happened without the kind of people that I had at my, at my home base in Southern California. So all of these, uh, all of these newsletters, they, they were, you know, a couple of paragraphs of, uh, of reflecting on what I'd studied or something that was going on in my life there, but also the things that I'd been like, just a list of the things that I'd been reading and listening, listening to and watching. And, uh, yeah, I love those kinds of lists. I'm going to be checking back in on a lot of that stuff too, now that I have it written down. That's awesome. I talked to my brother the other day and he said, you know, the thing I miss the most out, you know, as a you know young father in, in my career is I don't have the same community now that I had when I was 16 and 17. And yeah. he's like, and I don't, I don't know how to make it. I don't know how to make it. And I crave it and I miss it. And still, like, when he goes back home, like, if he goes back, I mean, he's in Maryland, and if he goes back to, mm -hmm. to Utah, he calls up his buddies who were in Utah and who were his 16, 17-year-old friends, and, and they go hang out, and they go do stuff. And it's, it's just interesting to see. It's like, even though you're all the way around the world, and you're obviously not doing any of the classics or projects or anything, or you still have a base of people who are invested in you and care about you, um, you know, decades into the future. Yeah, well, having roots is special. That's something that I aspired to do as soon as I hit the ground here in Nashville after grad school. That's the point of my seeking out church membership and, uh, and getting invested in my small group. Yeah. Um, Lemmy affords the chance for high schoolers who, um, who are entering into homeschooling which could be a really isolating thing to build lasting communities with each other. I like how you said that, you know, roots is a special thing. And um, I don't think you realize that you have them until you don't, you know what I mean? Like, the, like, yeah, 
when so we, when I entered college, yeah, yeah go ahead. I'll, yeah. I'll let you finish yourself first. I was going to say, we moved across the country when my husband and I were first married. And it was the first mm -hmm. time in my life and in his life where we didn't have family or we didn't have friends and we didn't have roots. And I yeah. just remember that first Christmas being like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. what are we doing with our lives? Like, I believe it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I get that at least to a certain extent um i spent from eight years old to 17 in in one place and uh it's going to be worth putting down roots someday like that but i'm happy to be doing that even in what ways i can now that i'm living independently here Yeah, I can't imagine moving across the country with, I mean, with just your spouse and being uprooted that way. It can't have been easy. Yeah. You've talked a lot about mentors and mentoring. How do you see the difference between a mentor and a teacher? What is the difference to you? That's interesting. That's not a distinction I've been used to making. Um, well, I, I'd be curious to know what you mean by a teacher, just out of curiosity, to, to help me understand the word that you're using. Well, a teacher. Um, I, I think it's in TJ Ed, isn't it? The book is Mentors, Not Professors. Yeah, mentors, not professors. Yeah, professors might okay. be a a better. Um, yeah, they profess. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I think about professors that I've had, and yeah, that that actually helps me out a lot. Uh, thanks for that, Tatiana. I have had several professors that I have really wanted to be mentors, but who were not in a place where they could do that for me. Those were some of the hardest lessons that I learned in undergrad is that finding a mentor is hard. I had it easy in Lemmy where, uh, where mentors simply presented themselves to me and wanted to be invested in, in not only my academic life, but in how that bled into my personal life. A professor is not somebody whose job it is necessarily to do that. And I won't, I won't put down professors for being limited in that way because uh, the professors that I know who have, who have only been that were still some of the more valuable teachers that I've ever had. Still, I really missed not having a mentor uh, in my life for a couple of years that I could regularly check in with. It was late in college that, uh, that I was able to find some and Naturally, things started looking up after that. But yeah, the fundamental difference between a mentor and a professor seems to me uh, that a professor will, if they're really good, make something, makes make your discipline current. It'll make it'll, they'll make it something that matters to you right now today. That is the baseline for what a mentor should do. 
if that makes sense. A professor is like, yeah, if they're really good, they'll get there. A mentor is like, that's where they start. And it only goes up from there. Yeah, I agree with you. I've had some people in my life who, you know, are have been phenomenal helping me with different learning things as professors, right? And just so helpful and so like necessary. But it it is it's a hard balance because you do, you know, like I would like this, but it's it's I like how you said that it's like because people aren't necessarily in a space or where they can be your mentor, it doesn't put anything down on them, you know, but it's more like, you know, finding those people, those mentors in your life who really can. And I also think it's interesting as you talked about, like, you know, giving back and um, <clears throat> talking about how much value there is in once you've learned something or gained something to then teach and, and, and then mm -hmm. to mentor, you know, I think, that's the kind of idea when I think of a mentor as somebody, it's like, it's, it's not just the knowledge content that they're invested in. It's, it's just, it's you. Right. And. Right. And it's, it's really wonderful when I can then do that for a student. It takes, it takes a certain set of circumstances for me to be able to do that. I'm a, I'm a young professional in addition to being a teacher. So um, I have to be very careful with uh, with how much I invest in uh, in different kinds of relationships. But when the circumstances are just right, that I can do a bit of mentoring for a student and not only make the discipline current, but really invest in the uh, in the day to day of how they practice it and uh, and in how many different ways, let's say, geometry can matter to them or uh, music theory and really being able to hear something that's going on around them or um, or the I have a dream speech and how that influences the way that they use their poetic diction, um, how they invest in the sentences that they say. I can do that as a, as a teacher, as a professor, but it's wonderful when I can do that as a mentor. As you're talking, I kind of had an epiphany about like, you know, I think what's unique about a project, any kind of project doesn't necessarily have to be a Lemmy project, but is you know when the mentor comes forward and says I'm I'm starting this project where come on with me, and it is that investment and everyone who's in that project has been invited by that mentor to engage and you know and it's just like an open like as a Lemmy mentor especially it's like an open invitation to everyone in that classroom to accept my mentoring and if you accept mm -hmm. it, then I'll go there with you right and it's just right. this exchange. Not every kid's going to choose it, right? But mm -hmm. it's a very, it just like Epiphany came to me as like, it's a very unique thing that happens with Lemmy. It's just like, that's so not, doesn't happen very often anywhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the you, not them principle in a nutshell, yeah. right? Yeah. No, you're coming as a mentor. I go, no, you're coming with me. And we're, we're doing this thing together. I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and talk at you. Yeah, I'm teaching Shakespeare and I have to just keep reminding myself, now they're coming with me, so if I'm going to ask them to do an awkward, emotion, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, oh actor's yeah. training thing, then I've got to oh do yeah. it too. And so it's like... <laughs> well, and that's some of the, some of my growing moments as a, men, as a student mentor sort of revolved around that, where conversely, so you're talking about um, having the nerve to, uh, to do for yourself what you're asking your students to do. Um, some of my less spectacular moments as a, uh, as a 
I think it was a classical acting mentor, where when I went so far into a thing, whether it was a rabbit trail or if it was a method acting thing or if it was text analysis, where I got so excited that I left my mentees behind. And that's, I'm lucky that I had Kathy Cruikshank for a co-mentor to, um, to bring me back to earth and go, all right, so there are 13 kids in front of you that you're, that you're working with. <laughs> and no, this I think is, sometimes this is it's a good thing though, too. Cause like, I, I find myself <laughs> doing that too. I'm like, wow, this epiphany is so cool. And just start going into it. And then I'm like, oh wait, oh, I'm in a room full of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do have to lovely. catch myself on that. <laughs> yeah. You know, moderation is nice. And of course uh, the, your mentees are bound to, as I'm sure they have for you, Tatiana, your mentees are bound to get something out of it when they see you getting absolutely jazzed about something. Um, but yeah, everything in moderation. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Rama, we should probably wrap this up. Um, we are so grateful that you could be on with us today. Me and, too. Thanks for making and, the time. Oh, definitely. And one of the great things is once you're part of the Lemmy community, you're always part of it. And I'm so grateful that you are here with us and always. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take a second to, uh, to plug some of the stuff that's going on right now. Um, if you want to, uh, for anyone who's listening, if you want to stay updated on, uh, on what's happening in my life, you can visit ramaflute.com. That's R-A-M-A -A, and the word flute. And join the mailing list because I, I am just getting started and I'd love to keep you in the loop. Yes, I'm so glad you said that. Um, can we purchase any of your music from your website? Absolutely. So um, I I'm about to take my debut album for another uh, print run. Uh, uh -huh. my, the album that I put out a couple of years ago with a, a dear friend of mine, a harpist named Amy Nam, is uh, entitled Seeing It Through. It's an album of music for flute and harp. It was a labor of love through most of my undergraduate. And uh, you'll be able to find more on my website about that too. Awesome. I'm so glad you shared. Yes, thank you. That was going to be our next question is where can we find you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That's where... Come find me. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, we hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things. <laughs>